Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm chatting with Black trans queer poet and educator, J. Mace III, to talk about the death of his father and his latest book, And Then I Got Fired, one trans queer's reflections on grief, unemployment, and inappropriate jokes about death. Also on the show this week, I'm talking about the grief of being lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer, and how my own sexuality has impacted my grief since the death of my mom. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for listening today. Before I jump in, I just want to say a huge, enormous thank you to everyone who attended my second annual podcast anniversary party in my private Facebook group, The Grief Growers Garden, last night. I heard from so many of you about your losses, how you got started listening to the podcast, what you get out of it, and your questions for me on grief and loss. I think my favorite moment of the night was when listener Kate commented about how grief is like an involuntary scavenger hunt, bringing up uh, context from episode 24 of Coming Back, so a while ago, and we got to share that metaphor with everyone who was watching the live broadcast, so some people who are newer listeners who haven't heard of it yet. Uh, Grief being like an involuntary scavenger hunt is one of my favorite euphemisms for describing what the aftermath of loss feels like, and it seemed to resonate with a lot of you, so thank you so much for joining me last night. If you'd like to watch a replay of the broadcast, just head on over to my private Facebook group, The Grief Growers Garden, and the post is pinned to the top of the group page there, so it's the very first thing you see once you join the group. Of course, I'll be having another podcast anniversary party next year on May 14th to celebrate three years of coming back, so I'll hope you'll join me there. And thank you so much again for spending a festive Tuesday night with me. Next Order of Business is my next monthly grief support hangout is happening Monday, May 20th at 8 p.m. Central Time. This event takes place in a private chat room over on Google Hangouts and is exclusively for Patreon supporters of the show. So if you're pledging $1 a month or more over at patreon.com slash Shelby for Scythia, you unlock all of my private posts, including the link to join us live during the Ask Me Anything hangout. So if you've had a hard go of it lately, or if you're looking for space to unpack a loss that you're going through, or have some heavy, um, I call it mind circling thoughts, 
I hope you'll join us there. In the past, we've talked about navigating the loss of a pet, uh, friendship loss, grief anniversaries like holidays and death days, um, and how to talk about grief with friends and coworkers who just don't really get it or don't really know what to say. You can always find the link to my Patreon page where you can join us this Monday, May 20th in the show notes. Okay, so this week my guest is Jay Mace III, a trans and queer identified human. I am so delighted to have him on Coming Back to talk about his book, And Then I Got Fired, which covers the death of his dad, but also so much more, including the intersection of being trans and grief. And that got me thinking. Despite my own queer identity, I have never done a podcast episode on how being queer changes how I see grief or the relationship between being queer, I'm using queer as an umbrella term here for lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, fluid umbrella, uh, and experiencing grief. I've never done a show like that before. Because I do think there are a host of griefs that queer people face that straight, cisgendered, heterosexual people will never experience. There's the grief of coming out, the grief of being rejected by family and friends. If a person is not out to family and friends, there's the grief of living out of alignment or outside of the truth of your of yourself, which can really mess with your head and your health as well, especially mental health. There's the grief of being bullied, the grief of not being able to find a job, hold a job, or even receive a job in the first place because of your sexuality or gender presentation or gender identity. There's the grief of being only seen as your sexuality or gender identity and nothing else, as if you have no other identity or humanness beyond that. There's the grief of not being recognized on a legal level or a society level or a cultural level, especially internationally. And then, of course, there's this vague, overarching grief, oftentimes, the grief of not belonging or feeling like there is no place in the world that's carved out for you. And that can be really, 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 really hard. In my own loss, I experienced a compilation of a lot of these griefs, and I continue to live a lot of these griefs as I move forward in my life. I was living out of alignment with my sexuality for a while, feeling like, I had one life where I was out at college and another life where I was not at home. And there is massive grief and weight and feeling like you're living under a mask 50% of the time for half of your life. There's also this strain of having to keep your story straight and the fear of being outed or found out or of someone telling the news before you have a chance to get to somebody and tell them yourself. And that's not easy, like not in the slightest. When I did eventually come out to my family in 2010, I experienced the grief of not being accepted by my religious family. My experience was very bait and switch where my family's sentiment was, we love you, but we love you, but we will never accept you. We love you, but we won't show up for this. We love you, but we believe this is a phase or we believe this is not true. And I couldn't reckon in my brain how these two things went together. We love you, but we don't accept you because... I couldn't put words to it at the time, but at the time, and even now, I'm like, how can there be love without acceptance? It, it just didn't make sense to me. But that's the space that I was living in when it came to being out with my family. And so somehow I stayed suspended in that grief. When my mom died from breast cancer in 2013, I often tell people she died while we were in the middle of a fight. About a month or two before she died, we were in a shopping mall in Charlotte, North Carolina, And we had one of the worst fights we probably ever had in the 21 years that I knew her in a dress store 
I was looking at wedding dresses and imagining the wedding I might have one day. I made some offhanded comment about marrying the woman that I was dating at the time. And my mom essentially said, you know, your dad and I won't be there. We won't show up for this. And something about the way she said it, the moment she said it, the fact that she squashed my daydreaming, um, it absolutely broke my heart on a lot of levels. And I didn't have the words at the time that I do now, but literally nothing I could say or do, and this had been going on for a while, but nothing I could say or do could make her see that I was the same spirit that she had always known. And there was no way, contrary to her belief, there was no way I believed I was going to hell. When my mom died just two months after that fight, my dominant emotion above everything else, the thing that trumped everything, and I know some of you can relate to this, was anger. She died before we ever got a chance to resolve the conversation about my sexuality. And to this day, it's still something I struggle with. It's my biggest pain point. It's this grief of not being accepted, living on into the future, into my future. As I've gotten older and most of my family has grown and accepted who I am and who I date, and I've started to learn these things about my mom that help me understand why she died not accepting my sexuality. In her life, religion was this cornerstone that saved her, in a way. I'm still not sure of the full details of it, and I may never be, but she leaned on Christianity and on God to help her with her own demons, whatever they were. And the type of Christianity that she subscribed to and believed in told her that queer people were going to hell. It was a genuine, genuine, deeply rooted fear of hers that I, her child, would be eternally separated from her in a place of very deep and dark suffering. She fought so hard to get me off of the life that she thought was a choice and a path. And what she never recognized was that my acknowledgement of my sexuality was not a choice. It wasn't something I was choosing to do. I was speaking a truth. It wasn't a phase or a, a trendy thing that I was participating in because I saw it on TV. My sexuality is and was just a thing that is and was that I finally put into words by coming out. In learning these things about my mom and her beliefs, where her heart lived while she was alive... I realized too that she was in the process of reckoning with what the grief recovery method calls the death of hopes, dreams, and expectations. So many times what we grieve and what we lose isn't something tangible. It's our thoughts for what we thought the future was going to look like or who we expect people to be with us and for us and alongside us. This is the case with so many parents of children who come out of the closet. My mom had dreams for me of marrying a straight, cisgendered man, somebody who was identified male at birth, believed they were still male, and had all of the necessary quote-unquote-unquote-unquote equipment to meet those societal definitions of a man. My deviation from that dream of hers, dating this full spectrum from men to women to trans folks to people who don't really identify with gender at all, or other people with a fluid sexuality, like that notion of her daughter living that life, living that story, that wasn't in her plan. That was not one of her hopes, dreams, or expectations. She never anticipated having to deal with that or even having to understand it or come to terms with it. She never expected her daughter to be queer. And on top of that, I think she believed that I was genuinely choosing a path 
that would send me straight to hell, and that death of hopes, dreams, and expectations that she carried for this little baby that she grew and birthed and raised for 21 years had to have been incredibly hard. And just now, five years into her death, going on six, I am just now starting to scratch the surface of that and see her in that. I'm understanding and comprehending why she didn't, and frankly, couldn't come around overnight or even in three years between the time I came out and the time she died. My griefs about my mom are often really, 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 really tied into my sexuality. A lot of grieving people experience the death of hopes, dreams, and expectations. So things like wishing your loved one could attend a wedding or graduation, seeing the future grandchildren that you have, or just having somebody you love who died be there for you as you grow old. That's really, really common to wish that your loved one was there during these milestones. But but with my own grief, and as it pertains to my sexuality, it's kind of like that fortune cookie game, where you add in bed to whatever your fortune cookie is to make it funny. Um, so my griefs almost always look like, oh man, my mom was supposed to see me grow up and move to Chicago and accept my sexuality. My mom was supposed to be here for my wedding and accept my sexuality. And oh, geez, my mom was supposed to be in the audience on my first book tour and accept my sexuality. So it's like my grief over my mom not accepting my sexuality is like this annoying, heartbreaking, twisty, bitter, unfortunate PS that's added onto the tail of everything I ever think about my loss. I can't help but wonder sometimes what my grief would look like if I didn't identify as queer. If I was somebody who identified as straight, cisgendered female. Would I be so angry? Would I just be allowed to be sad in my grief? Would I find other stuff to be angry about? Would I still miss her at milestones? And would I be bitter about it in the same way that I am now? Would my dating life feel as weird as it does now, knowing that she'll never ever be able to verbally accept and physically meet the person who's my life partner? I don't know. There is no way to know. There just isn't. And so it's a grief that I continue to live with. A listener asked me the other day, (laughs) off the mic, what I do when I'm faced with all these unanswerable questions, when I kind of get into that mind-spinning, mind-circling place, And I told them, especially when it comes to these questions about my sexuality and identity, I literally have to give myself a time limit on how much I can be allowed to worry about it. I came out in 2010. My mom died in 2013. She never accepted my sexuality. Her death is permanent. These are the facts of my life. These are things I cannot change or go back to and do over, no matter how much my heart and my spirit aches too. I have all of these fantasies about going back and making her understand and showing her the proof from the Bible and finally being embraced as her whole child and life. But I know that that's the way that death works. And that going back, that longing, that yearning, that that need that I have to be accepted for all that I am, it's just not possible in this lifetime. So when I get deep in these spaces of experiencing the grief of coming out and not being accepted and my mom's death all swirling around together in my brain, I literally tell myself, I'm like, okay, Shelby, you've got a half hour to worry about all of these things you can't change. Then you have to acknowledge that it just is your reality and it's how things ironed out for you. And you've got to get back to things that your energy can really impact. 
And most of the time telling myself that works. But my grief over my queerness, over my sexuality, over my identity, always lives like this little 1% in the back of my brain. And don't get me wrong, grief growers, I'm doing okay. My dad and my sister have both come around in their own ways. And my mom's sisters, my two aunts, are wholeheartedly supportive of my sexuality and how my relationships continue to show up in the world. It's just this one person, this one dead person, my mom, my mom, my mom, my mom, who I will never get that acceptance and seeing my whole self love from that I miss and I want And honestly, that I continue to grieve. It's just one of many things that I carry as the grief of being queer, the grief of coming out, the grief of not being accepted, the grief of not being seen for who I am as a whole person. All of these things are so, so very real. And they're special griefs. They're griefs that not everybody has to face. I know I've been telling a lot of my story here at the top of the show, Grief Growers. So if you're a person who identifies within the LGBTQ community and want to share your story with someone, anyone, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. Because of my own story and identity, this notion, these ideas, this type of grief is a topic that's super close to my heart. And I'd just love to meet you virtually, digitally, and say hello. If you'd like to join my private grief community in the Grief Growers Garden on Facebook, you are also welcome to do that and share your story with other listeners of this show, and I would so love to see you there. I'm sending so much love this week to all of you and your gender identity and sexuality and queerness this week. Next up, my interview with J. Mace III, who experienced a crap ton of losses in 2012, including the death of his father. Grief is setting sail, twice, on the 2020 Bereavement Cruises. To join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart-healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea, request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruise's organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. J. Mace III is a black, trans, queer poet and educator that has worked in the U.S., U.K., and Canada on LGBTQIA rights and racial justice in spaces such as K-12 schools, universities, faith communities, and restricted care facilities. He is the founder of Awkward, the first trans and queer people of color talent agency. Mace is the author of And Then I Got Fired, One Trans Queer's Reflections on Grief, Unemployment, and Inappropriate Jokes About Death. His current projects include being head writer of the theatrical production Black Boys and co-editor of the Black Trans Prayer Book. Jameis, I am so excited to have you on Coming Back uh, because your book of poetry, blessings, rants is such a, it, it takes this journey of like 
the waves, the ping pong pinball ricochet of grief and like smooshes it all into one little book of like, holy shit, that's what this experience is like. Uh, and I was just blown away by reading your work. And I'm just so excited to have you on to share your story today. Um, so can you start where we start all of our interviews and share your lost story with us? So yeah, for myself, I, uh, <laughs> I think I have so many different tales of loss. Uh, the one in particular that you know, I'm here to talk about today that kind of spurned this book for, for me is the loss of my father shortly after the loss of my grandmother uh, about in 2012. And so for me, my father was a person and is a person I spoke to every day, I still speak to every day, uh, is someone that, uh, you know, was my best friend and was my uh, weekend breakfast buddy. And um, was some, so he had a stroke sort of um, in the middle of the night. Uh, one night I had just moved up to New York City from Philly. I was in a new job literally for <laughs> a few months you know, very brand new, getting used to the city in such a bigger city than Philly. And um, went from seeing him constantly and saving all every single voicemail he ever left me to uh, only getting to talk to him on the phone every now and again. And so I get this call while I'm at work that he's had a stroke. Um, I wasn't informed until like the next morning, which, you know, was also a, a kind of a stressful moment for me to think of not being there when, when that happened. I uh, was with my father for the next uh, almost two weeks as he was in the hospital, kind of um, fighting for his life and so lost him to that stroke. And my grief story after that is, you know, the the ways in which before that I had lost uh, cousins, I had lost um, friends, I had lost, um, you know, as I shared my grandmother, literally the month right before uh, and my father was the closest person I ever had ever lost to me. And so I didn't realize I'd been going to funerals my whole life. I've watched multiple people die with my two eyes, you know, and been part of the, um, uh, the, the dying care for people, for multiple people. And yet that hit me the hardest. And so I wasn't expecting that. Um, and so it kind of knocked me into a tailspin. So, yeah. Totally. And that um, makes so much sense with like a sudden or an unexpected loss, but also it seems like you aligned yourself with your dad really closely. Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, one of my, I'm just going to jump straight into your book, which is called, And Then I Got Fired, One Trans Queer's Reflections on Grief, Unemployment, and Inappropriate Jokes About Death. Um, one of the very first pieces that I read when I started screaming at the book, which was an <laughs> that was on the back. <laughs> Please this book. Um, my favorite piece of all is Heartbreak Is. And mm. it's it's a longer one. It's about three uh about six or seven pages or so. Um, but it's it's all of these different iterations of what heartbreak feels like or how heartbreak presents in the world. And I'm wondering, do you have a copy of your book nearby? I do. Is this yeah. something that you might be able to share with us today? Most definitely. Most oh, definitely. I love it. Cause I, I read it in my, I have a voice in my head as I'm sure other grief growers listening to this podcast, we read books in our own voices. Um, but I think it's so powerful when we can hear the stories of others and theirs. Thank you. Heartbreak is a gurgling sound. It is a sound of breath leaving the body. It is the third body you left like that 
Heartbreak is the sound your phone makes when it's been days since you got a call, a text, and the one person you want to tell won't wake up again. It's the sound of being a teenager and wondering if you have feelings at all. It is being an adult and wondering if you can stop feeling so much. It is the way your tears sound like they are coming from a demon, one you haven't met before, one that takes over after you blacked out on grief, on liquor, on drugs, on whatever was around to comfort you. Heartbreak is holding your dad's hand for the last time in the hospital room, knowing he cannot speak, knowing you cannot understand, knowing even if you could talk through tears, he can't hear you. Heartbreak is knowing every abuser you ever had will always be at more parties, be more extroverted, have more friends, more lovers, and way less insecurities since they passed down theirs to you. Heartbreak is realizing the most lovable, shiny bits of you are paper mache pieces of whatever mask you use to protect people you love from the sadness of you. The gray parts with no silver lining that fester in the dark. Heartbreak is realizing the world doesn't believe in fairness and the shit your parents told you as a child about good people and bad people were just lies they told you so you had more to hold on to than they did. It is knowing that this ache might never go away that a single name, a word, a syllable, or two can have it all crashed down. It is knowing that sanity is a made-up condition, that there isn't always time to heal if you want to stay alive. Heartbreak is knowing some days you struggle to be alive and wonder, if all this is real tomorrow, what the hell was the point? Heartbreak is knowing that at some point you'll have to just forgive God. They don't know how hard it is to be human sometimes. It is knowing that no one is coming to rescue you from reality, that this is sometimes all there is. Heartbreak is knowing you'll choose to do this again because the uncertainty is scarier. Like if you could just hear a voice once, you'd do something different. If you could see something once, you'd stop being afraid. Heartbreak is knowing that you can always experience more pain and it is safer to manage the wounds you've got. I just always do a big exhale when I read that um, because there's so much in here. The question that's coming to me is what is your relationship to heartbreak? What is my relationship to heartbreak? Yeah. Um, so even as we're talking about grief, I think the thing that I learned most about my relationship with my father and other family members was after you don't have an opportunity to argue about anything anymore where you don't really have an opportunity to kind of go um, go through your relationship or, or, you know, you realize how much you negotiate in order to stay in community with people. So for me, uh, especially so at some point in the book, I talk about being in a, uh, in a domestic violence uh, relationship and a DV relationship. Um, and, you know, I dealt with that relationship while I was dealing with grief and, Afterwards, I'd ask myself, was this the first abusive relationship I'd ever been in, you know? Um, and when I asked myself that question, I realized it wasn't, you know? It was like that actually I'd been primed in many situations. I talk about my dad very much, and I don't share this in the book much, but so yeah, my dad was definitely my best friend. My dad was also someone who didn't necessarily, you know, when I was a kid, he sometimes wanted to deny that I was his kid, you know? Um, sometimes he would be away. And I would think that he was at work for years at a time, right? Like, and that's, um, I laugh when I'm, you know, uh, uh, when I'm uncomfortable. Uh, but, you know, this is, for me, heartbreak is about 
knowing that even that piece of, I said, like I've been with people while they're dying and I, it's hard to describe to people who have never been with people while they're dying, what that experience is like and what that means, uh, what it means to lose people to friends to suicide, what it means to lose uh, cousins who are uh, younger than I am now, right? Like younger than I am now and I'm 34 years old, what it means to um, lose different types of people. Um, and it's, it's knowing that you can't, that you have to find a way to mend a relationship after that person is no longer physically with you. So I think that to me is the hardest part and the biggest part of heartbreak is um, I wish that I got to tell my dad about how some of the things that went on between us when I was a kid made me feel. Um, I wish that I had an opportunity to kind of um, go into some of those experiences and thoughts about abandonment uh, because you know, I basically tracked down my father as an adult and not that, you know, it's not that he was, um, he was so hard to just pin down. And so sometimes we would go a few years without talking. And so I basically stopped this man. <laughs> I found his number. I had, cause I didn't have his current number when I was in my early twenties. I had to find his, his current number, um, online through one of those, uh, People search apps. You've seen those before? Yeah, like Intellius or something like that online. Yeah. Yeah, so I found that and had to, um, you know, and I would basically call his his house number, his cell phone number, and I'd be like, listen, we go on a talk. (laughs) Like, I'm your kid. We're going to talk. And so, you know, I'm sure that he was dealing with his own stuff around shame or or, um, anxiety around um, the loss of the relationship for a while. But we ended up being really close and I have no doubts that I was my father's best friend. I know that everyone in his life describes me that way too, you know? Um, but it's because I chose to be an adult in a situation in which I was the child, right? Like even in my twenties, I was still the child to this person that I loved very dearly. So, so that's for me, that's a long answer to, to your question, but of what I think heartbreak is for me or has been for me. I think that's really fitting because that's the story of, so many of us who are grieving is that it's like we're in the middle of a phone conversation and the call gets dropped and it's dropped forever. And like, yeah. you never hear anything back from the other side. You can't redial like the phone's dead forever. Not only is the phone dead, but now the relationship is as well. Um, and I literally wrote something down as you were speaking about how you said, I wish I could have processed this idea of abandonment with my dad. Um, and I kind of want to get into like, death as the ultimate abandonment because something that I uh, harbor with my mom as well, especially as somebody who also identifies as queer in the world and that she essentially died in the middle of a fight. We were negotiating Mm. my sexuality and where it fit into my life and whether or not she would be willing to show up for me if I ended up with someone who is not a cisgendered man. And Mm. so for her to die, for the call to drop in the middle of that conversation was just earth shattering, especially when our relationship previously had been really uh, solid. I didn't have a lot of like abandonment or disconnection from her. So to have it show up so suddenly in her death, like totally rocked my world. Um, But I'm wondering how, how things are different possibly between you and your dad, where that pattern was kind of always there. And then death is like the ultimate abandonment. Well, I'll say for myself, the stuff around my transness and my queerness was never the part that, um, that my father wasn't around, wasn't, uh, was difficult about. So for me, when I came out, I came out and I was primarily living with my mother 
Um, and my mother was someone who lost, for all gentle purposes, she lost her shit when I came out, mm-hmm. you know, I had to do the therapy thing. I don't think my therapist at the time would call himself a conversion therapist, but did he believe that my 15 year old self was queer, even though I was sitting in his office telling him that? No, he did not believe that. Right. And was uh, basically telling my, so I was in the situation in which my therapist was telling my mother that I'm just confused about the world or all these different things and trying to shift my narrative. Um, and so coming out to my father at that time, he didn't have that reaction. His stuff was more about, I have a twin sister. You know, I don't really talk about my other family members in the book. I just specifically talk about just my relationship with my father directly. Um, but so like I have a twin sister um, and, um, and so he didn't just abandon me at different points in my life. He abandoned both of us. I have a brother who's a half brother. Um, that I didn't meet until I was an adult. Um, and so my brother didn't get to really engage with my dad until he was in his, like, until really, again, until he was in his, like, 40s himself, you know? Um, so, yeah, so I think it was hard for me to have, like, this parent that um, that was seemingly okay with me being a queer person, but also just wasn't around. And so it's... So it was abandonment from being a really small child and um, when they would uh, have separations or things like that and I might not hear from him. Like my mother used to call my dad's, uh, my dad's mother, my grandmother, uh, not the one that passed in this story, but one that passed a few years prior to that, um, that he was living with when, um, when my mother and him separated when I was a child and she would pretend like my dad called me, <laughs> you know? And so she was doing all this work. And so my mother and I, we went through all of our stuff around. So I felt like I got abandoned in multiple ways, right? So from this one parent I lived with that was just um, so ashamed of me. And, um, and then this other person who I loved and my queerness was like, he did all his personal work. He's never said anything in front of me that was anti-queer, anti-trans, anything like that um, once I came out, but uh, just simply wasn't around. There's something that's um, that the grief recovery method talks about about when people die, how it feels like you're reaching for them, and if if they've never been there, you're reaching again, and they're still not there, but there's more of like a sense of forever. Um, yeah. I don't I don't know what what idea I'm getting at with that, but something about permanence keeps coming up, like just that idea of permanence and yet that's conflicting with what you said at the very beginning of our conversation where you use the present tense to describe your relationship with your dad which you use the word is which I absolutely love yeah because I'll say like so I have an altar in my apartment um that I have my some of my dad's things on um I talk to him every day I, I pray for our healing for our continued growth I think there was some places in which my dad was also dealing with abandonment of of folks in his family and other sort of stuff um that he never healed from. And so in his, as we think about afterlife, I don't know what everybody's that's listening, what their, their belief system is, but um, I believe very strongly that we have the opportunity to continue healing after death. Right. Uh, and that it's my job as someone who's in this body in the living, especially for those of us that believe our folks are still with us to kind of continue having those conversations. Like I want my dad to have a better relationship with love and family than what he had during his lifetime. And I want to have during this lifetime, a better relationship to that while I can in this physical body. And so that anyone that comes from me, whether it's 
biologically or just through uh, our connection spiritually. I want them to also even be able to do even better than I was able to do. Can you talk about what some of those prayers consist of or maybe even how they started? You know, um, so I, I started building my altar short, right after my dad died. And so he had a, um, so at his funeral, a cousin of mine, she is a, uh, she's a florist. And so she made this uh, big, um, this big, uh, really beautiful flower arrangement uh, for him that had his photo kind of in the center of it. His flowers all stuck around. And so it's this big blown up image of him from a picture that I took of him. So I, so even talking about when we talk about that, that, that rejection around queerness and transness, my father's uh, wife <laughs> hated me <laughs> when I was, and which is a whole, whole other thing when you're talking about planning funerals and doing all this stuff together with someone who otherwise would not engage with you. Um, and so I remember putting together the booklet for his funeral and I picked out this picture, which was important to me because it was a picture that I had taken of him while we were at a brunch together, while we were at like a breakfast situation. Um, and so he's looking at me. And so every time I see this picture, it's like, he's just looking at me and we're having this, this moment again. And so that picture was not used in his little booklet, but my cousin, um, unbeknownst to me, she made this beautiful, uh, flower piece with this picture in the center of it. And so I, I brought that large picture home. And so I think for me, the prayers uh, started just um, as I was thinking about just the residuals of the grief, that it wasn't just that I was mourning the loss of this person that I was talking to every day, but I was also mourning this loss of my ability to heal some sacred shit. <laughs> I started just um, mutually, you know, I, I just light candles and just pray, you know, so I have a, an old ring of his. So he's part of the nation of Islam. So yeah, I have a ring of his from back in the day um, and a watch of his and some other things. And so when I'm praying in candles, I just, I'm asking, you know, for universe creator and for the both of us to be committed to our continual healing. Right. And so I just, so I say something like that to him every day or I'll, share something about how I'm feeling. Um, but yeah, just like we pray for the living, I think we have to also pray consistently for the folks who are past that we want to have a relationship with. I think that's so like incredibly valid, also incredibly personal, also incredibly spiritual. Like it's, um, it's an amalgamation of a lot of different things that are like uh, proof that thoughts, hopes, dreams, relationships continue in the aftermath of loss. One of my favorite uh, quotes, I, I believe is from Megan Devine. She's an um, author on grief, but it says, death ends life, not a relationship. Mm -hmm. And so for as much as our effort shows up in the world, we can continue these relationships. There's just like the growing pains of that relationship needing to show up in a different way or us needing to be willing to be the ones who pick up the phone and try and start right. the conversation again, and then be willing to have what comes back on the other end of the line, not look like anything it has ever looked like before. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's wild. Is that picture the one that's in the back of your book? Yeah. It's, um, it's a picture I use for him very frequently. And so I think someone asked like, Oh, this is the one that you always use. I'm like, yeah, because it's just, it's, you know, it's um, for me, it's just, it's our adult relationship. It's us 
having that space where I feel like, you know, I had a very different relationship to my dad than my siblings had. Um, and then I think that, you know, I believe that everybody has a need to have at least one person in life that loves them unconditionally. Um, you know, I definitely was that person for my father. Good, bad, or indifferent. I know that's the role that I played in his life. Wow. That's like really powerful to say. Thank wow. you. Yeah, that, that's... Just to be able to say, I know for sure that's how I showed up for him. I'm just having it. That was, that's wicked. Cool. I'm just having a moment with that. That is wicked. Cool. No, I think it's, um, I think it's important to, so for myself, you know, um, so I'm having this conversation with another fellow member of mine who's, um, one of their, their uh, siblings is, is sick and, um, terminal and, you know, they're at a place where they've been arguing for years. And I said, you know, you have to really just ask yourself. I said, you know, you can, you know, if you feel like this person has hurt you to a point that, you know, if they do pass, you won't care, that's fine. You know, that's your own, that's your own business and that's your, that's your right, right? Um, but if there's a part of you that feels like, you know, you would miss them, you know, this is the time to kind of start doing some of that work, right? Um, and that you, just as you said, you know, not knowing necessarily what's going to be on the end of the phone when you call, right? So I, I have no uncertainty around, did I show up for my dad in a way that um, we both needed? Because I knew that it's something, my dad was um, in his 40s when I was born. Uh, so I knew he was going to pass um, before my friend's parents did, you know? And when I thought about the idea of, you know, something happening to him, I was like, no, I just... I know that I would miss him. And so I'm going to put that extra effort. Most people teach you that, oh, no, it has to be the parent that does this, or this is what we learned, you know, growing up, that it's our parents that have to be the adults all the time, you know? Um, and I knew in this situation that I could, I could be the adult. I could be that person um, and that I could reframe what I expected from this relationship uh, in a way that was mutually beneficial. And so that's what I did. That takes a lot of self-awareness for what you as a human can and are willing to bring to the table. Yeah. And, um, I'm not sure that I will do it again the rest of my lifetime (laughs) (laughs) in this sense. Uh, yeah. In this sense, it made, it made, uh, it's what I needed. Like I definitely, I would say that my father was my soulmate in the world. Like he was someone that I understood his anxieties. I understood his depressive moments. I just understood, um, some of the things that, you know, he experienced in the world. Um, yeah. And I don't think I've ever understood a person like that. That's just such a phenomenally neat way to phrase that. I've just never heard it phrased that way before, because I think um, all of us in some way as grievers, I all of us in some way as humans, like forget even the grieving aspect, but we're entering into all the time energetic contracts with people in the world and deciding like how much, of myself do they get to see how much of me do they get to receive vice versa and like all that that implies um so to be able to 
to step in and be like, I'm holding here with unconditional love, despite and inclusive of the past is like mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Especially now inclusive of your dad's death. Mm-hmm. Um, can we get into, I want to talk about two things and they, they're very intersected for you. I want to talk about what it's like to be black and grieving and to be trans and grieving and where those things come together, how they're different from quote unquote white grief, which is all so much of the grief sphere is very white and very cis female, which I've picked up on the longer that I've been in this sphere. Um, And just, it's, it's something that you speak to so strongly in your book. And so many of your blessings are geared towards trans people. My favorite is dear trans person. You have a right to heal. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what I would say for myself with this book, what I thought was very important is um, a lot of times as Black trans folks, we have, as Black folks, as trans folks, and as Black trans folks specifically, we're often um, taught to write from a perspective that the audience doesn't necessarily know what you're talking about or what your experience is. And so this book kind of comes in a place in which um, I want it to be so that folks in my community can pick it up, read it, and feel like they were listened to and thought about and centered in all the different kinds of ways. And so I don't uh, know that I can separate it into like differences of black grief versus white grief because I don't necessarily know what it is to grieve as a white person. I do know what it is to um, be alive in a system of white supremacy in which people don't ever see your pain. Um, mm-hmm. And so as black and trans people specifically, that um, oftentimes we are dealing with folks who are um, committing suicide. We're dealing with folks who are uh, being uh, killed. We're dealing with folks who are attacked. Um, there was a woman who was just recently attacked in broad daylight, you know, in Dallas, who was a black trans woman, you know, um, by a group of people, you know. Um, and so it's that you're constantly in spaces in which you're antagonized, right? And so even going back to, for me, like, finishing up with um, with my father, uh, as far as like him passing, and then having to negotiate with stuff about his service with people that see me as a sin, right? <laughs> or see me as unworthy just by my transness and the sheerness of my transness. Uh, for me, when I think about the role of Black trans people, and so there's a poem, the first poem that's in the book, Zone of Rarity, which talks for me a lot about the divinity of Black trans people and like knowing that there's a legacy of transness within Black and Brown communities um, that was specifically targeted by colonizers, by conquistadors, specifically because of the roles we played in healing. Um, I'm very clear when I share that kind of legacy and that information that to be a Black trans person means to be a person who is a holder of ancestral wisdom and means to be someone who's a holder of healing and seeing yourself beyond what other people have ordained for you. And so to me, this book and just being able to talk about my grief and talk publicly about healing stuff for me uh, is vital because I think that when we talk about the spirit, when we talk about, so regardless of what traditions people come from, you know, uh, for those that identify any kind of spiritual space, any kind of faith or spiritual space, the constant story that we're always told is we are physical, we are having a physical experience, right, as spiritual beings, right? So we're having a physical experience as spiritual beings, so that this physical experience is temporary for us as we move through spirit. And I don't know any other group of people 
that exhibits being spirit more than trans people. Because someone can label something about your body, someone can label something about who they think you're supposed to be in the world, someone could say how they perceive your physical self. And for you as a trans person, say like, actually, no, screw that. That has nothing to do with me. That's about you, right? I see myself, my possibility beyond all that. Uh, for myself coming from a, a Muslim and Christian household, I think very much about um, Yusuf and uh, Joseph of Genesis. So Yusuf of the Quran, uh, Joseph of Genesis, who was um, who some theologians talk about as a potentially trans character in text, which if people want to hear me talk about those things, it's a whole nother, another day of nerdy theology stuff. Um, Heck yeah. But so this character who was so, who as is, especially if we think about this person, as a gender non-conforming and trans being who was a survivor of domestic violence, who was a survivor of sexual violence, who was a survivor of, um, you know, incarceration and all these different types of things. But also throughout all of this, throughout all these different tribulations that are very trans experiences, all the things I named are also very trans experiences, that Yusuf could see themselves beyond what other people had ordained for them through their dreams and through their capacity to connect to the divine. Uh, and so I think that for me is the, the piece around Black transness and um, in particular is to be connected to a sense of possibility that most people don't have capacity for. Most people have never questioned themselves in that kind of a way. Most people have never thought about, like really thought about the spirit because the spirit for them is so connected to what they've been told about the body, right? Um, yeah, and so I think that is the difference is that I'm seeing myself as part of a legacy of ancestors, of healers, of um, dream uh, uh, builders, you know? Um, and so I see my, my healing around my grief, helping other trans people heal, helping other black trans people heal, um, and helping a legacy of erasure the erasure of black trans bodies to come back into black spaces as a whole. So that's some of the hopes for my work and my capacity to want to talk about healing and grief. Well, and just from hearing you speak, it sounds like, it sounds like you're saying I have plugged into a channel that has existed for a very long time. And so the, the wisdom that's coming through is like, it's way older than me, but also here I am living it in these times and broadcasting it in these ways. And like, to me, reading this book, um, it's not even like so many other books in the gray sphere where it's like, Hey, I'm showing up. It's like, Hey, I'm insisting on being here. I have always been here, but now I'm like, I, I am insisting on showing up. There's something that's like, um, the word that's coming to me is like ancient about it. Um, and I think that's, uh, I think that's really fantastic because there's something, there's not even like a, I mean, have you ever questioned your connection to divinity, spirituality, either as it relates to grief where there's like a crisis of faith as loss happens or just in general within the course of your life, because it seems like these practices like prayer, like giving blessings, like being connected to these ancient spiritual channels are second nature for you. You know, I think um, because we are spirits having a physical <laughs> experience. Uh, no, I think everyone has some sort of crisis. I feel like if someone has never had a crisis of faith, they're not human. Right. <laughs> 
you know. Um, that's how to weed out the AI that's coming. Yeah, because it's just like world. you have to. Because especially <laughs> as we as we think about the loss of the things and people that help center us throughout the experience that we're having, um, it's normal to question. It's normal to uh, so even with the poem I read earlier, like heartbreak is, you know, part of the piece of, uh, so there's a line like, if you only heard a sound once, or if you only heard this once, you know, um, after my father's death, I think I was expecting him to show up in a very specific type of way in my life. Um, I was expecting to see a very clear type of vision. I was expecting to see certain types of things. And I, I didn't see that. I did not see that. Um, I had this experience a few, uh, probably almost a year ago, I was on a, speaking on a panel about transness and faith. And, um, someone came up to me and they were kind of, you know, when someone's kind of being really shifty and secretive, <laughs> and you're like, yeah. Oh, like, what is this? Which is never, you know, that's, you know, after, so most of my work is, you know, talking in front of people or performing in front of people. And so uh, I'm like, okay, so this, this is going to be a weird conversation just now. And so, um, so I'm kind of gearing up for this, for this conversation. And so this person says, you know, like, I've, I've never, I've never shared this with anyone. I've never really seen this before, but I, I just needed to tell you. And I was like, Okay. This could be anything. (laughs) This could be anything. I was like, like, I'm a space alien or like, you know, whatever, you know, or I just robbed a bank. Like, I don't know what this is. And so they were like, you know, when you talked about your father on that panel, there was this light that appeared behind you. And it was just, and the way this person kept was describing this thing, it was just like, you know, it's like I'm tearing up just thinking, just just because it's um, you know, I expected my father to show up in a way that was palatable specifically to me in the ways that I've always expected that stuff. Uh, you know, uh, I think there's a certain way that we describe those sorts of visions. Um, and the reality is, is I've, I've known that he's been with me this entire time. And so I've had doubts because at times, because he didn't show up in the ways that um, other people told me to expect, you know, I was sort of jealous of people that would talk about like, this person shows up in my dreams all the time, or this person does this. It's like, uh, I'm pretty clear that my dad has always trusted, especially as an adult, that my dad has trusted my wisdom and my intelligence, which I think is something that not everyone also has the peace of knowing from their parents, right? But I'm very clear that my dad saw me as a smart person, as a together person, um, and all those things. And so I also know he's showing up in a way that um, he can be present with me, um, and also in a way because he also trusts me. And so it's nice to even just hear those, those things from people, because that's not the only time I've heard someone say something like that to me. Um, but yeah, having more experiences like that definitely, you know, it um, it reinvigorates, right? Your your faith. Yeah, for sure. And um, whew, that's something that you and I were talking before we got on the mic about the concept of secondary losses—the things that fall away in the aftermath of what I would refer to as like a biggie loss. Yes. Yeah. Um, and crisis of faith or loss of faith is one of the biggest ones that gets uh, kind of shoved under the rug, partially because it's taboo, partially because everybody's is different, and partially because there's so much shame surrounding, like, of all the times in the world now is when you don't believe in God. Like, you might want to pick mm-hmm. a better time to stop believing. I'm like, no, I think there is a better <laughs> time to stop believing than right now. <laughs> um, and that's why yeah. I love that line from Heartbreak Is, is like, you're going to have to find some way to forgive God, because that can be standing yeah. for the universe, the divine order of things, the way life works, being human. You can you can substitute a lot of things for the word God if, like, the three-letter word G-O-D is not like what you put stock in. Um, 
but it's, it's this concept of like, at some point you have to reckon with you're alive and the person that you love is not. And so you have to negotiate how to continue to exist without their presence. Yeah. Yeah. Which is something that, um, I think for all of us, there's at least like one or two people in our lives that, you know, if they weren't around, we won't, we don't know who we'd even be. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so for me, even this, uh, this place, like, so my, and I spoke just even very briefly about my grandmother, not my father's mother, but my mother's mother who had died right before my dad. Um, you know, she lived 10 blocks away from me in, um, in Philly. And so moved up from Philly to New York within a month she had passed. Um, and then a few months afterwards, uh, my father passes, um, you know, and so in those things, like, these were people that I saw all the time and were relatively okay until I left, you know? So even uh, thinking that you're going to have that me going up to New York, like from Philly was such a big transition in my life. And I didn't, that in and of itself, I didn't realize how much my life was going to change in a few short months right afterwards. I didn't know how to be, I, you know, when people talk to me about the, uh, you know, the, the tagline or start of the book, it's like, and then I got fired, you know, people, uh, people that will see me work. We were talking about tourist season before we got on <laughs> the recording too. And just like how this is such a productive time, all stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm very much a workhorse. I will say that. Um, and people will say like, I don't know, Mace, I don't know how you got fired from a job before. And I was like, I know exactly how. I was a basket case after my, my family died, right? So I was, um, I was crying all the time. I couldn't do work. You know, I had no thoughts about what was even the purpose of living, you know, if these folks are dead, like, why are you even here? You Ooh, know? Yeah. So, yeah. So I think that, uh, that kind of secondary piece and just loss of, you talked about loss of identity, all these different things, you know, that, that just natural, it's natural and normal to experience those. Things. I wonder in your world, um, what does, some type of happiness look like or how is that starting to flesh out for you since this triple quadruple whammy of events in 2012 <laughs> listen it was yeah because that was so many things it was the move it was like the death it was the firing it was um yeah i don't even go into all the different types of things so there's a lot of stuff i left out i kept the book purposely short but so yeah, so I was going through it in a lot of different directions. So for me, happiness has been, you know, the blessing for me was coming into being a full-time artist. That uh, when I was sitting there and I was, you know, I, I remember specifically when I left my job, and it was May 1st, it was, uh, yeah, May 1st, 2013. I was, it was still one of the best days of my life. I was like, I hate this job. I hated this job when it, before all these bad things started happening, I hated it from, I just didn't want to work in a certain type of space. I was working in higher ed at a uh, very hoity-toity institution. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the kind of pretense that you had to have every day just wasn't who I am. And so I remember calling my mother and saying like, I'm just gonna do full-time art now and I'm gonna just spit poems. And she got very nervous. She was like, are you moving in with me? Like, are you gonna make money, blah, blah, blah. Like what's gonna happen? Uh, but luckily none of those things happened and I wasn't planning on having to move in with her. But um, 
Yeah. So happiness for me is I, I think that there's a lot of ways in which black trans people get pushed out of, uh, and especially black and brown trans people get pushed out of nine to five work. Um, and again, goes back to living in systems that don't see us human on a regular day. Like most people don't ask us, like when you see us, like, what did it take for me to catch a bus that day? Right. Did I get followed that day? Did someone harass me? What does it mean to be purposely humiliated by someone on T at the TSA, at the DMV, right? What happened when I was at, in line at the grocery store and someone gets focused on what I am or their child says something nasty to me or if someone uh, uh, pushes me while I'm crossing the street? You know, there's lots of ways we get antagonism on a regular daily basis and then to have to work in heartless systems, <laughs> you know, makes that anxiety, that depression, that, um, that desire to be a recluse even more. And so for myself, it's reclaiming the, uh, my history legacy through poetry, right, again, in that spiritual space. It's, uh, it's also right now I'm working on a project with a friend of mine called The Black Trans Prayer Book, which we're going into much more beyond faith and interfaith conversations about the divinity of Black trans people. So it's being able to create things like that. It's um, being able to do workshops for people. It's like, I just, I want to be on a stage and spit poems and theology for the rest of my life until I die. Like that's, that's really what happiness is for me. And, I, and because the grief part made me so incapable of doing the things I hated, uh, I started to move a little differently and start to think about, you know, because I'm at this place where life is no longer meaningful, like it's no longer the only option. <laughs> what would I do if I was unafraid? And the thing I would do if I was unafraid was to move out on faith and be this poet that I knew I was supposed to be. Grief gave you this enormous perspective. Like, these are all the things I hate. So like, what are the things that I really, really love? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. If there's even a possibility for you to love after it, right? If there is so, even a possibility for you to love. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Because I know, I would say for me, like when I think about, um, uh, I love poems when I love most people. Like it's just, it is, it is what it is, you know, it is what it is in my life. And I know that um, I was fortunate enough to know that my father also loved that for me and was really supportive of that. And so I know that for a lot, and especially when we talk about black and uh, black grief and this grieving as black folks in a system of white supremacy and all these different things is that, um, you know, I think one thing you had mentioned before was like, you know, what do you do when you have this much debt after, after a funeral? What do you do when you have all this? It's like, we come from systems that don't have access to wealth oftentimes. And we don't talk about that. We have really polite conversations about race, but not really about what does that mean for the day-to-day -day life of people, especially when you're coming from uh, communities as trans folks and as uh, trans and queer, black and brown folks, they're even more uh, stigmatized and more less likely to have access to work, to credit, <laughs> to, uh, to friends and family and stable housing, right? To safety, to paper, all those things, right? Um, again, with the constant antagonism. So uh, for me, like doing this is, is uh, I know that a lot of people that I come from didn't have the capacity to feel like they were allowed to dream, right? That they were allowed to, feel good that a lot of times when I was, even when I was having that conversation with my mother, who was like having a breakdown about me being a full-time artist, 
my mother didn't have the opportunity for someone to ask her what would make you happy, you can do that, right? And so I'm stepping out on a dream she didn't even know she had. So she was really nervous about that at that moment. And now my mother's really excited about my work. She'll come and she'll travel to come see me perform places. She'll sit in the front row. She'll, you know, want to hang out with people, talk to other people about my work. Because she, she, like my father, didn't have the opportunity to dream. You did stuff just to make money and that's it and to feed people, right? Um, yeah, so even that feels like a service to community of saying that Black folks have a right to dream <laughs> and to fulfill those dreams and to manifest things and to, to be unafraid, right? And that as trans people, specifically as Black trans people, we have a right to safety. And so doing this work has also given me a certain type of safety that I think other people who are dependent upon folks who don't understand their experiences for resources don't. Yeah, and that's so perfectly phrased an image of, um, I think I saw a tweet from an Asian actress the other day. She's like third generation uh, Asian American. And she's like, it's now finally a privilege to be able to dream, like to, uh-huh. to take hold of things that my parents and their parents could not even fathom taking hold of because they were busy just trying to survive. Um, right. She almost phrased it as like, it's a, it's a privilege, a luxury, but then also a right to be able to dream and thank God it's coming in third generation. But like mm. for, for so many of us, especially as a white man, I'm like, of course I get to do that. So like, just mm. even hearing you say that is, is such a different perspective. And so to be um, shaky, have a shaky foundation in so many other ways and to be grieving on top of it is like, holy moly. Yes, please pursue your art. Yeah, I think even it's uh, to me, even it's so much of a necessity because for survival of people and communities, you have to be able to remember history. You have to remember um, you have to have motivation, all these different things that I think art creates. Right. So in like for some of these pieces, like I'll even say in this book, especially I'm going back to the zone of rarity piece, because that's like I would say, like took the most research of all the poems in that book. Um, But that short three minute history that people get from something like that. Um, is something that people need to know <laughs> about, like just our right to uh, um, our right to survive. Uh, where you know um, that the things that they're experiencing are real, uh, and that we we must remember who our ancestors and people were that that fought so hard for us to be here. Right. So all that stuff for me comes from art. I think that's just a perfect place to let people know where they can find you and your art as well as your book. And then I got fired. Okay. <laughs> yes. So yeah. And then I got fired. One transcripts reflections on grief, unemployment, and inappropriate jokes about death can be found on my website at www.jmesa3rd.com, which is the letter J, M is in Mary, A is in Apple, S is in Sam, E is in Eagle, III.com as well as on Amazon, lulu.com, and barnesandnoble.com. Rock on. Anywhere fine books are sold. Yeah, anywhere fine books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Jamie's the third. It has been wonderful sharing space with you today. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your, your multifaceted story, as well as your art. So thank you so much for joining us today on Coming Back. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm so, I feel so blessed to be here and to be able to, to talk openly about grief with you. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. 
Thank you so very much to Jay Mace III, who sent me a copy of his book, and then I got fired, and came on the show today to talk about grief, religion, work, art, transness, blackness, and all the ways our hearts break after loss. Mace came back by writing poetry, maintaining a shrine in his home for his dad, and by taking it upon himself to continue his relationship with his father after his death. You can find a link to Mace's website where you can find his book, And Then I Got Fired, in the show notes. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live hangout time with me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby Forsythia. Thank you this week to Rudy and Betty who pledged. I will see you both behind the scenes. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you have a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my magnificent grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. grief coaching is a powerful way to sit across from your loss and say, what do you have to teach me? If you're ready to start sharing your story or you're looking for tools, exercises, and a map forward in the aftermath of loss, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching to fill out an interest form. Grief is a personal experience, but we don't have to go it alone. My heart and ears are here to witness and companion your grief story, and I would be honored to provide a foundation for you as we explore, construct, and navigate your own coming back. Find out more and get in touch for a free 30-minute consultation call at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching. Give your grief the gift of coaching at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief coaching.